Father, we thank you for the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who's made a way for us as unholy sinners to be gathered into your presence, to be made holy by the work of Christ at the cross. And Lord, we praise you that Jesus doing what only Jesus can do has made us acceptable in your sight. And we pray that we would celebrate him in this day. And Father, we know we're not the only church in town. And so I pray for everyone who's gathered in a church like this to celebrate the one and only Jesus, to be filled with the Spirit, to know and love and live and proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus. And Lord, I pray specifically for Grace Life Church in Rockledge, Lord, that you would fill them with the Spirit of Christ and faith to believe that Jesus is alive and well and is the shepherd of his people. And Lord, I pray you would guide them to your choice to be the next lead pastor of that assembly, Lord. And we look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the days ahead. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I'm getting a little bit of feedback. You guys hearing that? It must be a very powerful morning for us this morning at that kind of feedback. Mark chapter 2. You know, next week is is Mother's Day, and I've got to tell you, I'm a self-professed, lifelong mama's boy. She's one of my all-time favorite people, one of the greatest individuals I have ever had the privilege of knowing. Listen, I love my mom so much that for several years while Emily and I were dating, she was honestly convinced I would never get married because that might bring the slightest possibility that I'd actually have to move out of mom's house. And so I love my mom. All right. Do you think I love my mom? All right, good. But as great as mom is, she has a few little idiosyncrasies. For instance, my mom hates change. 25 years ago, I hung red wallpaper in her living room. It's been in and out of style now three times since I hung that wallpaper. And it will be on those walls until mom goes to heaven. I can even hear her saying as she listens to this podcast whenever it comes out. But Titus, it's in such great condition. She hates to let go of anything that she thinks still has any usefulness at all. That means when you look through her kitchen for a spatula, you are likely to find a 50-year-old Tupperware spatula that's so worn out it can no longer spatch. You just have to, you just have to use your finger. This is a spatula at mom's house. It means when you look in her freezer, you're likely to find ice trays that are so old and cracked, you can no longer twist them enough to get the ice out. So you just have to run hot water over the cubes to melt them enough that they just fall out into the sink, which is a fun little game to play, right? It means when you go to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you're likely to find upwards of 10 jars of peanut butter that any reasonable person would just throw away. But mom thinks that she's able to eventually piece together the collective residue to cover a piece of bread someday. Except she won't spring for a new spatula to get the peanut butter residue out. So she's in a real catch-22 up there. And since mom is unwilling to let go of the old, I'm always preaching at her when I go home for Christmas. Mom, there's some things I think you're really missing out on. Some 
some pretty good new things, like a dishwasher. Dad got her a dishwasher as a surprise gift 30 years ago, and she made him take it back because she claims she can have the dishes washed and back on the shelf before anyone can run them through a dishwasher. Mom, that's not the point. Maybe you've got other things to do. Let the dishwasher do it for you. And for all of you in the room who are offended on behalf of my mom, I called her Friday to run all of this by her. She loved it. As a matter of fact, she wanted me to give you a message. For all of you who are offended at this joke at my mom, she wants you to send your complaint emails directly to her. But the joke's on you because mom doesn't use newfangled things like email. (laughs) I love that woman. So what's the point? I have no idea. I just had to kill four minutes. Anyhow, the point is this. My mom is awesome. And she's doing just fine in her old way of life. It's even endearing to us as a family. But sometimes mom misses out on the benefits of new things. Because she's just unwilling to let go of the old and embrace something new. And that's actually the point of the next passage of Scripture in our study of the Gospel of Mark. You see, Jesus came to bring about something new. He came to bring a a new life filled with new blessings. He came to bring a new kingdom filled with new blessings. He came to bring about a new covenant filled with new blessings. But you will not enjoy the new blessings of Jesus until you are willing to let go of the old and live in Christ's new life. So with that in mind, let's look at our next passage of Scripture in our study of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of God for us this morning. And before we dig into this text, I just want to refresh your memory of what's going on in this section of Mark. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, what Mark has been doing in these first couple couple chapters is highlighting the authority of Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one of God that God's people have been waiting for for thousands of years, literally since the Garden of Eden. He's the king of God's kingdom. He's God in the flesh. And in these first couple chapters, Mark is displaying that Jesus is showing his authority in unmistakable ways. He's healing diseases. He's casting out demonic spirits. At the very beginning of chapter 2, you might remember a couple weeks ago, he's even claiming to have the authority to forgive people of all their sins as though all of their sins are against him. That's an unmistakable claim 
to being God to say all sin is against me. So this is an action-packed section of scripture that's highlighting the authority of Jesus, but that's not the only thing that Mark is highlighting. He's showing us even from the very beginning of the ministry of Christ that people had drastically different responses to Jesus. Look back at a text from last week, verse 14. Mark chapter 2, verse 14 says this. And as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Okay, so Levi, you might remember, who's also known as Matthew in the scripture, was a tax collector. Jewish tax collectors were awful, evil people. They were greedy, they were materialistic traitors against their countrymen because they had chosen to side with the Roman occupiers and oppress their fellow Jews by extracting exorbitant taxes from already poor people. As a matter of fact, people were so poor and unable to meet the tax demands, they had to make the choice between buying food or buying seed to be sown for their crops or buying medicine or pay their taxes on time. And so these Jewish tax collectors further oppressed already destitute people. They were hated because they were evil. And Jesus comes to Matthew and he calls him to leave that life. That life of selfishness and greed and wealth and career security to follow him. And what does Matthew do? Well, we just read it. He leaves it all behind. He lets go of all of that and follows Jesus. And he's not the only one. Verse 15 actually says, we just read that, many sinners like Matthew follow Jesus. And I love the scene there. They don't just follow Jesus, they throw a party in honor of Jesus. They're saying, we're giving up everything to follow Jesus. Let's celebrate. Can you imagine somebody walking up on this big party and saying, hey man, what's the celebration here? And it's, it's this, Matthew just lost his job. Let's celebrate. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. He's let go of everything and it's a joy to have let go of everything Because Jesus is worth it. Well, that's one response to Jesus. There's another group. They're a super religious group called the scribes and the Pharisees. And in this section of Mark, they're in every single one of these scenes. And they don't like Jesus. They're not like Matthew. As a matter of fact, Mark is actually using this section to show us that while you have people like Matthew and those sinners who are celebrating Jesus and laying it all down and following him with joy, you got another group of people. And everything Jesus does and every word that he says only makes them more and more angry. And the culmination of this section in Mark is actually chapter 3, verse 6. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. I'd say that's a slightly different reaction than Matthew and his sinner friends, right? The religious leaders don't like Jesus at all. They reject him. They don't hold a party. They hold a council to decide how to destroy Jesus. So Mark is showing us two really different responses to Jesus here. There are some people who reject Jesus. 
And because they reject Jesus, they never experience or enjoy his blessing, the blessing of his presence, the blessing of his miraculous, gracious power. That's one group. There's another group that embraces Jesus. And because they embrace Jesus, they do enjoy his blessing, the blessing of his presence and his power. They feast with with Jesus. Even the picture we'll get later on is that Jesus will forever feast with those who will embrace him. Heaven will be a feast of joy and celebration. And our text for this morning is right in the middle of those two paradigms. It holds the key to something that has to happen in all of our hearts, guys. Something that has to happen in us that would stir us to embrace Jesus and enjoy the blessings of a new life in him. That's what this text is showing. So let's look through this text a little bit at a time. Look at verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came to Jesus saying, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Okay, stop right there. So Jesus has just come from a huge party that was thrown in honor of him. There are people then who are starting to get suspicious of Jesus because he's not like any other religious leader they've ever known. The other religious leaders, even the good ones like John the Baptist, led people to regularly fast. Now, here's what I want us to know. Fasting is a good thing. As a matter of fact, we already read that Jesus fasted for 40 days at the beginning of his earthly ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples how to fast. The early church, they practiced fasting. In verse 20, in just a second, we'll see Jesus indicates the time is going to come when his followers will fast again. So the point isn't really about fasting or against Fasting. Notice what he says in verses 19 through 20. He's getting to the heart behind why they don't fast. He says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Stop right there. Jesus goes back to the idea of a party. But this time, it's not the kind of party Matthew just threw him. It's a wedding party. Back in Jesus' day, a wedding wasn't just an an evening event. It was a week-long event. The whole village was invited, and it took an awful lot of time to plan and prepare and get ready for that kind of week-long festival of celebration. It was a huge event. And the wedding week started when the groom would leave his father's house and go to the bride's father's house. He'd be accompanied by some of his friends. He would receive his bride and then he would escort her back to his house. And once the groom came back, the party could start. Once the the bride and groom arrived, the feast could really begin in earnest. But you, you didn't start the feast Until the groom arrived with his bride. You don't cut the wedding cake before the bridal party arrives, right? If you do, you're the worst person ever, okay? So you don't do that. And neither did they back then. You wait till the one who's being honored is present before you start the feast. And so you can just imagine. All that work to get a week-long feast has been going on for a long time. 
And the guests were all there. They were waiting for the groom to arrive back with his bride. All the food, all the wine, all the things were ready there for the celebration. But they just had to wait. To just wait. To patiently wait. But once the bride and groom arrived, and here's the point, everything changed. And what Jesus is saying with that parallel is that the fasting of the Old Testament was like the period of time that was waiting for the wedding. It was the time of anticipating, the time of preparing for the groom to come. And Jesus is the groom. He's the one that all of God's people had been waiting to arrive. And the time of the waiting was over once the groom had arrived because here Jesus the groom is. The time of preparation is over, he's saying. And that meant Everything needed to change. He even gives us a parable to make that point. Verse 21, he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus says, listen, when you get a hole in your old shirt, you might love that old shirt, and you might want to fix that old shirt, but you don't use a piece of unshrunk cloth to patch that shirt. That's not a fix. Why? Because your old shirt has already shrunk as much as it's going to shrink. So when you wash it, the new fabric you use for a patch will start to shrink and tear away from your old garment. And his point is this, a new patch isn't compatible with an old shirt. You with me? Good. So you're with Jesus because he's the one telling this story. He says it's also like a wineskin. Now, in those days, wine was put into a container that was made from the skin of a goat or a sheep. Sounds tasty, doesn't it? I don't drink, but I hear vintage billy goat pairs really well with pulled pork. That's just word on the street. Well, here's the story. When it was new, the skin would stretch. And as the wine that was new was put in it, it would ferment. And that fermentation process would release gases that would cause the wine skin to expand. But you can probably guess that wine skin could only expand so much before it lost its elasticity. That meant if you poured out the old wine from that wine skin and then put new wine into the wine skin, the expansion from that new wine's fermentation process would explode the old wine skin. Here's the point. New wine isn't compatible with an old wineskin. The old, and here's what links those two illustrations together, the old isn't compatible with the new. And the lesson that Jesus is bringing us is that he has come to usher in a new kingdom with a new covenant filled with new blessings for all of God's people. The covenant that God had made Moses 1,500 years before in the Old Testament, the covenant of Judaism, would be replaced with a new covenant Jesus would make at the cross through his blood sacrifice, the covenant of true Christianity, of grace, of gospel. And the Jews, he's saying, and all other people as well, need to be willing to let go. 
You got to let go of your preconceived ideas. Let go of your old traditions. Even more like Matthew, the tax collector, in the scene before this. You have to be willing to let go of everything to truly embrace Jesus and follow him and worship him. Or you will miss out on the new blessing that Jesus has in store. As a matter of fact, that builds for us our big idea for this morning. Here's the big idea for today. We will not enjoy the blessings of Jesus until we let go of the old and embrace our new life in Christ. Guys, Jesus came to bring something that is an unwelcome word in many Baptist churches. Change. Jesus came to change. To change our standing before God from sinners to saints. To change our citizens from kingdoms of this earth to the kingdoms of heaven. To change our identity and our ability and even our destiny. But we will never enjoy the blessings of the change that Jesus brings with his new life until we are willing to let go of the old and embrace our new life in Christ. That's the point of our text. And there are two specific things that are embedded in this text that we have to let go of to enjoy our new life in Jesus. And before we close, I just want to give you both of those things. Number one, new life in Christ requires letting go of self-righteousness. Guys, the heart of the Pharisees, the ones who ultimately want to destroy Jesus in the days ahead, their heart was a heart filled with self-righteousness. You see, they loved to point to all of the good religious things they had done that set them apart from all of the other sinners. And then in their mind, they made that seem like they were now more acceptable to God. They were now more righteous because of the things they had done or the things they hadn't done. And fasting was just one of those things. You see, the Old Testament only required Jews to fast one time a year, the Day of Atonement. But by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees demanded that people fast two days a week. It went from one day a year to two days a week. And what they did is pointed to their fasting as an example of just how righteous they were and why God should be pleased with them in a way that he he would accept them because of what they've done. As a matter of fact, listen to a, a famous story that Jesus told about a tax collector like Matthew and a Pharisee like we're reading about in our text. Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14, Jesus says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Guys, Jesus' point is simple, and it's the one he's pointing to back in our text. If you trust in your own good deeds, you will never be justified in the sight of God. That's just another way of saying you will never be right with God. 
which means you'll never enjoy the blessings of his presence and gracious power in Jesus. If your claim to being pleasing to God is anything that you have done or haven't done, then you aren't pleasing to God. Guys, church membership won't make you right with God. Community service won't make you right with God. Volunteering at church, giving money, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, reading your Bible, saying your prayers, getting baptized, attending Bible studies, the things you do, those things won't make you right with God. And Jesus says you have to let go completely of every attempt to make yourself right with God if you want the blessing of being right with God. You have to grab hold of Jesus by faith and let go of every other thing to trust in his mercy and his grace and his work for you at the cross and through the empty tomb to enjoy the blessing of eternity with Jesus as the Christ. The old wineskin of self-righteousness is not compatible with the new covenant of grace through Jesus. You have to let it go. So let me ask you this. If someone said to you, why do you think you're pleasing to God? What would be your answer? What makes you think you would be accepted into God's heavenly kingdom? If your answer to that question is or includes something you've done for God, And not what Jesus did at the cross. You are not trusting in Jesus. And you cannot be right with God if your claim for righteousness is self-righteousness. New life in Christ requires letting go of self-righteousness and embracing Jesus And Jesus alone, it's by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone that we are right with God. And that brings me to the second thing. New life in Christ requires letting go of self-centeredness. Now, in a lot of ways, this is closely related to self-righteousness because it's a life that focuses on self. But the reason I think it's fitting to consider it on its own is because the example Jesus gives us in our text is about a feast or a celebration. And when he talks about the celebration, he intentionally puts himself as the one who's being honored. Look back at verse 19. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, we know he's saying, I'm the bridegroom. So he's talking about himself. He goes on to say, as long as they have the bridegroom or me with them, they cannot fast. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying like this. My followers are feasting because they can't help but celebrate me. And they're right to do that. Guys, that's not an isolated thing in Scripture. That's what life in Christ's kingdom is supposed to be like. I mean, the paragraph right before our text is about a party that was thrown in honor of Jesus. And and right, right before we see Jesus give this example, we see people gathered around Jesus celebrating him because it's right for the king to be at the center of the kingdom. It's right for the creator of the universe to be at the center of the universe. It's right for the most wonderful, beautiful, worthy person in all of the world and existence to be celebrated and praised. And that person is Jesus. And so it's right for Jesus to be the center of all things and all celebrations. And what Jesus is pointing to is that our 
lives are either centered around Jesus or they're centered around the wrong thing. Namely, ourselves. Our lives have to be centered either around Jesus or we have centered them around ourselves. And there may be some who say, well, isn't that an oversimplification? I mean, aren't there more than just those two choices? I mean, even if my life isn't completely centered around Jesus, that doesn't mean my life is completely centered around myself. I mean, what if I choose for my life to be centered around my wife or I choose for my life to be centered around my kids or my job or even my sports team? Even if that's wrong, that means my life isn't centered around me. But that's not the case, guys, because if you center your life around anything other than what Jesus says should be the center of your life, which Matthew 6.33 says is his kingdom, his righteousness, him, then you're effectively saying you have the authority to do whatever you want. You have the authority to choose whatever you want to be the center of your life, which puts your authority and your choice at the center of your life, no matter what you say you've chosen to put there. That's called a self-centered life. And Jesus says the old wineskin of self-centeredness is not compatible with the new kingdom of Jesus. You will not enjoy the new blessings of life in Jesus Christ until you are willing to lay down an old, self-centered life that's all about you. Jesus says, they don't go together. And so with everything in me, I just want to encourage you, would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you answer this question? Is your life centered around Jesus? Is your life centered around Jesus? You know, I was thinking this week, it's been 25 years since God allowed me to start preaching the gospel. I started when I was two, and it was really challenging because I couldn't read. No, I'm kidding. And it was hard. Because I didn't want this life. My dad had been a pastor. I'd seen what his life was like. And there were many blessings and many hardships. And I didn't want it. And I'll never forget those days in college when I heard the Holy Spirit over and over and over again press this statement into my heart. And I couldn't run away from it. No matter how hard I tried, the Holy Spirit, through the work of His grace, kept pressing onto me this truth. Titus, your life is either about Jesus or it's not about Jesus. So will your life be about Jesus? Or will it not be about Jesus? And what that meant was that every one of my dreams and every one of my plans and every one of my priorities, the things I wanted, the things I wanted for my life, for my future family, for my American dream had to be laid down on an altar before Jesus. And I'll never forget in those early days as I started preaching and finally said yes, uh, my mentor was a 90-year-old pastor who always preached with a same pattern, three points and a poem. That's what he was known for, three points and a poem. And he'd say, Titus, you just need to use a poem. And I learned a poem when I was 20 years old at the beginning of that whole journey with Jesus. And I remembered it this week. One by one, 
He took them from me. All the things I valued most. Until I stood there empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I roamed earth's highways, grieving in my rags and poverty, until I heard a voice from heaven say, Lift your empty hands to me. So I raised my hands to heaven and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches until they could contain no more. And only then I understood it in my simple mind and dull. God cannot pour out his blessings into hands already full. And there are many of us who have walked into this room today with hands so filled with the things we want that we are unable to receive what Jesus wants to give. So let me ask you this. What in your heart of hearts are you unwilling to lay down in order to experience Christ's best in your life? That's what Jesus is saying. Let go. Let go. We will never experience the blessings of our new life in Christ until we let go of the old and embrace the new in Jesus. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And for those of you who've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, maybe you have looked at your baptism as a child or church attendance or the things you've done or haven't done as your reason for thinking that you're all right with God. And maybe this morning you've realized that if you could make yourself right with God, Jesus didn't have to come and die in your place. Would you call on Jesus to save you? Confess your sin and your inability to be pleasing in the sight of God by your own power and call on Jesus, only Jesus, to give you grace to forgive your sin and make you right with God. Some of you, the Holy Spirit, may have revealed that your life may be about good things, but it's not about the best thing. What in your life are you unwilling to lay down at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I'd rather have you. I'd rather have you in the life you have for me than my plans, my dreams. Would you lay it down? you lay it down Father we ask that our hearts would be like Matthew and those sinners who had a line drawn in the sand that would forever change their destiny that they finally could see that Jesus was more valuable than careers and money than influence and security 
than the fleeting pleasures of sin in this world. And they would have just rather had Jesus. And when they laid it down, they did with joy. God, make us those kinds of people. Lord, help us let go of all the old. All the old man, the old way of life that impairs our ability to enjoy the blessings of Christ. Help us lay it down. And Lord, calls us to leave this place as people who would say, I'd rather have Jesus because Jesus is enough. He's more than enough. Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name.